Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Well, good morning, Mercy Church. Great to be with you. This is always so fun for me to be able to preach here for the simple reason that this is the only place I get a video introduction. So nice. I speak at all these other places. Introductions are fine. But here, I get this video introduction. I actually have only spoken here twice, but both times Spence has been gone and given me this nice video introduction. It's great to be back with you up front. Actually, in the first service, they, they had a glitch and they played the video introduction twice. And so I was like, okay, I'll, I'll take it, you know, uh, two, two introductions for one message. But uh, it's great to be here with you. I love this topic this morning. I'm excited about this series. Spence mentioned to me that, hey, we're doing this new series on doubt here at Mercy Church. Would you come and give a little installment on why we can trust God's word? And I love the idea of the series, which is a great thing just to sort of probe into why we believe what we believe. But particularly, I'm excited about the subject because this is the subject of my own uh, field, my own scholarly interest, and I think there's a lot of exciting things we can talk about today. So when he invited me, I said, yes, sign me up. But then I realized, couldn't we have done this before the 8 a.m. service started or something like that? So we are now on the three-service mode, but I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Let me begin just with a theme verse for us this morning. This is not going to be a traditional sermon, as you might guess. I'm not going to exposit a passage. I'm going to lay out reasons why we can trust God's word. But let's start with a passage. You don't need to turn there. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. You know this verse well. Jesus, when he is being tempted by the devil, utters a quote from the Bible. I'm actually from Deuteronomy 8.3, and this is what Jesus says. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is our prayer for this morning, that we would be the kind of people who do exactly that, that put our whole life under God's word, and we're going to ask God to help us do that. So let's pray together as we jump into today's topic. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for a chance just to reflect upon these things. That example of Jesus is maybe the most important, which is that the word incarnate, when he had a chance to think about what he would rely on, relied on the word that even he had himself inspired. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be those kinds of people too. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I don't know if you ever have one of those moments in your life where you sort of have this deep pit of sort of tension and stress in your stomach. I can still remember now almost 30 years ago when this happened to me, and it's just sort of seared in my mind because... I had that feeling in my stomach when I was sitting in a class at UNC Chapel Hill as a freshman. And I had shown up to campus that first year as a committed believer. I'd grown up in a Christian home. Parents loved Jesus, taught me the gospel at a young age, had a good youth group. Brother was a believer. I figured I was ready for whatever was coming my way in college. But 
That particular moment, I found myself sitting in a university religion class. And the topic was introduction of the New Testament. And I figured, well, you know, I, I'm ready for this. I grew up in a Christian home. Whatever's coming my way, I'm sure I can handle. And so this professor got up there on the very first day. Rather dynamic, inspiring kind of teacher, very eloquent, very smart, started introducing the class. And he says, in here, we're going to talk about a teacher in the ancient Mediterranean world. Got a band of followers, went around and did miracles and had great teaching. And after a while, the authorities put him to death. And later he was resurrected and came back to life. And that person's name was, and I'm there as a dutiful student writing things down. And I wrote the name Jesus on my sheet of paper. I can still remember this today. And then my professor said, and that person's name was Apollonius of Tyana. I was like, Apollonius of Tyana? Who in the world is Apollonius of Tyana? And you could see he'd set up the class for that very mistake, because one of his points in the very first day is that you think you know the story of Jesus, but you really don't know the story of Jesus because there's other people in the ancient Mediterranean world who were famous too, and did miracles too, and maybe even rose from the dead as well. And Apollonius of Tyana is one of those people. See, you don't really know what you think you know. And then that class proceeded to sort of tear apart everything I believed about the Gospels. It said you can't trust them. There's contradictions. There's fabrications. There's stories that were made up. And then they weren't even really transmitted very well because scribes made thousands and thousands of errors and changes over time, and on and on it went. So I endured this for an entire semester, and I had my own little crisis of faith. And I began to wonder, well, we all wonder at some point in our life, do I really believe something that's true? Is the Bible really trustworthy? What if everything I believed is really just a lie. That's a very scary moment to be in. And that's when I had that little feeling in my stomach. I was like, oh no. And it's like that panic moment. Am I wrong about everything I thought I knew? Now, if you've never had that moment, then you just need to wait a little longer because everybody has it in their life. Whether you've been walking with Christ for one year or 30 years, eventually you get to a point where you're like, do I really know why I believe what I believe? So my short time with you this morning, I've got a really simple goal. I want to give you reasons why you can trust the Bible. It's just that simple, why we believe it's God's word. Everyone needs that incursion. Some of you here today, you already believe it, and that's great. Maybe when you leave, you'll believe it even more uh, uh, confidently and be more encouraged. Some of you are here today, and you don't really know what you believe. That's fine. That's the whole reason for this series. But whatever, I hope you take away, you can be assured that there's good reasons that Christians believe. The Bible is the word of God. It's not just a blind leap of faith. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not a, just a, a groundless hope. We have actually reasons why we can trust these books. Now, when Spence mentioned this topic to me, I was like, okay, so I've got one message to explain everything about why we can trust the Bible. How's that going to go? Well, as you can imagine, <laughs> we're not going to get to all the places we could go. Um, there's more work to be done. I'm sure for some of you, you want to go further. That's fine. You certainly can come take a seminary class. Some, uh, Spence mentioned we're right around the corner, Reformed Theological Seminary. You can come take my class on the Gospels sometime, and I get into these issues, and some of our other professors get into them too. But for our purposes today, let me just lay out three reasons why we can trust God's Word, three testimonies that give us grounds for trusting uh, in these books. Let's start with the first, and that is we can trust them because of the testimony of Jesus himself, because of the testimony of Jesus himself. Now, for those of us in the room who already know Christ or are already Christians, this is the logical place to start, right? If you want to know about any critical issue, anything on your mind, anything you wonder about what to believe, certainly what Christ has to say about it has preeminent value. And you'll know, and you probably already do know, 
that Christ loved the Bible, what we now call the Old Testament. One of the things that's noteworthy about that is often we think about tough parts of the Bible. Usually the Old Testament gets the, the, you know, bad rap. It's the hardest place. Usually we can maybe figure out how to trust the new, but the old is tough. But what we'll see in a moment is Jesus loved the Old Testament. He found it the, the inspired word of God. But some of you are here today and you don't necessarily know that you should be a Christian or trust Jesus. Is there still a reason to think his opinion matters? I think so. Even if you're not a believer, even if you haven't decided what Christ's identity is, certainly you have to realize the topic at hand is whether the Bible's the word of God. To answer that question, you have to go to somebody who knows something about God, right? Someone who has a good chance of giving you reliable information about spiritual matters. The Bible is God's word. It's not just an intellectual question, although it is. It's also a spiritual question. So who do I, who do I go to to get reliable information about God? Even if you're not a Christian, surely you have to recognize that Jesus is still an important source to know things about God, his life, his history, his teaching, his followers, all show us that he should be given his due weight in terms of his opinion. Kind of reminds me of the show that was all long ago called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, where if you got stuck on a question, you could phone a friend, remember that? And people, you know, if you, if you were on that show, you'd probably line up key friends that have certain expertise and certain disciplines, and whatever the question might be that you get stumped on, well, you call the guy or the girl that has the best shot of answering that question. Well, it's kind of like that with this. If you want to know whether God's word is God's word, if you want to know about these things that are spiritual, call the guy, if you will, that has a good shot of getting it right. So even if you're not a believer, surely Christ's opinion should hold due weight. Now, of course, someone might say, yeah, but how do we know what Christ really said? I mean, aren't we, when we, when we say Christ thought something, aren't we basing that on the gospels? Aren't we already presuming the gospels are reliable? Yeah, but what we'll see in a moment is actually, even if you don't believe the Gospels are inspired, there's great historical reasons why we think they're reliable. And so we can know what Jesus thought about a variety of things. So what did he think about the Bible? Well, we see it all over the Gospels. We talked about the verse just a moment ago, our opening verse, man shall not live by bread alone. Here's Jesus in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. He's hungry. He's starving. What does he do? He quotes something. What does he do? Does he quote Plato or Homer or the Greek poets or the philosophers in the Greco-Roman world? No, he quotes the Bible. And he quotes from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus also talked about the Old Testament in its totality. Then in the book of Luke, he actually says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. It's an interesting phrase, law prophets, psalms. These are the three full parts of the Old Testament in Jesus's day. And he says, not only am I familiar with all three parts, but all three parts ultimately speak of me. We'll come back to that in a moment because that's a remarkable phrase. Elsewhere in John 10, Jesus says, the scriptures cannot be broken. Referring to the Old Testament, they cannot be mistaken. They cannot be overridden. They cannot be proven wrong. They cannot be overcome. Why? Because they were taught and um, or the, the, the authors were taught by the Holy Spirit and written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But more than all the things that Jesus believed about the Old Testament, here's the thing that matters most is he actually followed it, right? He obeyed it. He studied it. He read it. He quoted it. He meditated on it. He loved it. He's like the psalmist who loves the word of God. Here's the thing I want you to realize about this first issue. When you ask the question, what do I think about the Bible? It quickly morphs into a more important question, what do you think about Jesus? That's really the question. And we'll see that the issue of Jesus is going to run throughout the entire 
question today because whether you think the Bible's wonderful and rich and beautiful is whether you think Jesus is wonderful, rich, or beautiful. And you realize that he saw the scriptures as utterly and entirely trustworthy. Now, what's incredible about Jesus is he didn't stop there. Not only think the Bible was the inspired word of God, but he began to talk about his own words as if they had the same authority as the Old Testament. This is a stunning thing. And in Jesus' day, it actually shocked people. No one talks like that. No one speaks of their own words as on par with Scripture. But Jesus did. At one point, he said this in Mark 13, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus is saying, when I speak to you, I'm speaking to you eternal words, the very words of God. No one talks like that who's a normal preacher. Spence comes back next week and says, guys, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That's probably not a good sign, right? Uh, He may have uh, gotten a, a, a bigger picture of himself than he should have had. Normal people don't talk that way, but Jesus is not normal. He's the very son of God incarnate. Now, here's the thing. You might think, okay, so that gives me reasons to think the Old Testament's true, and it probably gives me reasons to think the Gospels are true because they contain Jesus' words. But what about the rest of the New Testament? Well, here's the interesting thing. Jesus, in his lifetime, appointed his followers, what we now call apostles, to be his spokesmen, right? To be his mouthpiece, to be his emissaries. I tell my students there, Jesus has authorized biographers. They go out and they are commissioned to tell his story. And we can link every one of our New Testament books, in some sense, back to those apostles. So why should you trust in the rest of the New Testament? Because they're the mouthpiece of Jesus. They are written by or go back to the immediate eyewitnesses and followers of Christ. So in one sense, this first point is foundational. I suppose you could say in one sense, it's enough. We could theoretically just stop right here. When's the last time you heard a one-point sermon, by the way? It's like there's some Baptist law of nature that says every sermon has to have three points. I'm not sure exactly why that's the case. It's like that for Presbyterians too, don't worry. Maybe it's the Trinity. I'm not sure, but we have more to go. We could stop there, right? All you need to know is if someone who has a reliable link to God, (laughs) Jesus, gives us confidence in the Old Testament, confidence in his own words, and confidence in the words that come from his apostles, that's reason to trust the Bible that we have. Okay, but let me move to a second thing this morning that gives us a reason to trust God's word. Not just the testimony of Jesus, but secondly, the testimony of the Bible itself. The testimony of the Bible itself. You may not realize it, that throughout the history of the church, most people have not come to believe the Bible is the word of God in the way we typically think in the modern West. We think most people come to believe the Bible is the word of God in the modern West because they go and they investigate the historical evidences, right? Sort of like I ended up having to do after my class at UNC Chapel Hill. Many of you, some of you may not realize that the professor I had in that class at UNC Chapel Hill actually ended up becoming a very famous professor, actually became uh, well-known later. is Bart Ehrman, if you don't know the name, um, who's written a number of books. That was the person who was critiquing the Bible when I was there as a student. And what you realize is that I had to do the heavy work of going in and look at the historical evidences to rebut what I was learning. But most people don't come to faith that way. Most people don't come to believe the Bible because they went out and got a PhD or they read a bunch of books. How do most people in the history of the world come to believe the Bible's the word, of, uh, the word of God? Because they they read it and they listen to it and they hear it taught and preached. And they realize there's something about this book There's something about these words that has certain qualities 
certain marks that show it's from God. Now, to be clear here, we're not saying that the Bible merely claims to be from God and therefore must be. That's not the argument, okay? By the way, the Bible does claim to be for God, but that's not our argument. Our argument isn't just saying accept the claim. We're talking here about the Bible having internal qualities, internal evidence that shows it has divine origins. And this is what the history of the church is typically affirmed in terms of a reason to believe these books are from God. And by the way, you do this in other ways. What if I were to ask you today how you know that the, the created world is from God? How do you know the natural world out there, all the, the rocks and trees and mountains and sunsets and universe, how do I know that that's from God? How do I know that he is the one who made all that? I imagine you'd probably say something like, well, I mean, I mean, who could look at the beauty of the universe, the intricacies of the universe, all the, the incredible complexity of the universe, its vastness, its wonder, its scope, the impressiveness of it? Who could see the Grand Canyon or watch a sunset and not realize that God is there and behind it? In other words, if you made an argument like that, you would be talking a lot like the psalmist does in Psalm 19. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God that proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, you'd be making a biblical argument. Paul makes that argument in Romans 1. and basically says, if you look at the natural world, it's God's, God's fingerprints all over it. Well, here's the thing I want you to see. It's also true for the, the scriptures. If creation could be identified as from God because it's got his mark, so it is true with the Bible itself. His special revelation actually reflects, reflects his own qualities. In fact, scholars have noted this for generations. Even going back a long way, think about the words of Isaac Newton, who actually was a follower of biblical teachings and obviously a brilliant man. Here's what he said about the Bible. I find more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than any other secular history whatsoever. In other words, when I read this book, I see something different. So what are these marks? What do do we see in the Bible that shows us from God? Well, there's so much to say here. A lot of scholars and, and theologians have pointed out the harmony and unity of the Bible how over 66 books, over thousands of years, over 40 different authors, you're not just telling a bunch of little stories, it's woven together into one unified story of redemption. In fact, one of the things that my seminary students typically say is that when you study the Bible at depth for long periods of time, one of the things that impresses you is the interconnectedness of it, the intricacies of it, how they all fit together. If you just think about how do you pull that off on a human level? How does one author know what another author is going to say in a totally different generation, in a totally different time, writing even in a different language, in a different culture? But yet it all binds together in a unified story of redemption. You can't take five people and stick them in a room and get them to agree on religious things. How do you get all these authors to agree with this kind of unity? Another thing theologians have pointed out about the Bible in terms of its internal marks is the power of this book. What you read about, when you read the Bible, you realize something very interesting. You realize it's not just telling you things. It's not just saying things. The Bible's actually doing things. It's actually doing things to the listener. It's actually doing things to the reader. Why? Because it's not a dead book. It's a living book. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So it's not so much that you need to breathe life into this book. It's kind of breathing life into you, Right? It's not so much that you need to read this book as much as it's kind of reading you and exposing you and showing who you who you are. It's not so much that you need to grab a hold of the book, but the book is basically grabbing a hold of you when you read it. In fact, for generations, people have come to believe this book is from God by virtue of its divine power. A book I wrote, 
a couple years ago called Christianity at the Crossroads. I, I looked at the way the Christian movement sort of sort of developed in the ancient Greco-Roman world. And one of the things I was able to study there was conversions, how people came to faith. One of the most famous conversions was a pagan philosopher by the name of Tatian. Tatian was a Greco-Roman thinker, had no love for Christianity, thought it was silly. He actually ended up becoming a Christian. What's curious is how it happened. It didn't happen because this brilliant philosopher went and you know, compared the Bible with all the other philosophical thinkers. It's not because he went and did all this historical study. He didn't go get a PhD in textual criticism. What did Tatian do? He read the Bible. His testimony later is stunning. This is what he says. He says, I was led to put faith in the scriptures by the amazing cast of the language, the inartificial character of the writers, the foreknowledge displayed by future events, and the excellent quality of the precepts. In other words, when I read the Bible, I realize there's something different here. In Tatian, became a believer. You can mention other things. One of the things that you, that you, that's an internal mark of the Bible being from God is just the worldview it contains. When I think about the coherent, sort of intelligible worldview that the Bible has, it allows us to have an explanation of so many other things in the world. In other words, when you think according to the things in this book, the world makes sense. Actually, this is one of the reasons C.S. Lewis converted. Here's what Lewis said. It's a very famous quote. He says, I believe in Christianity is I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's an interesting idea, isn't it? The truth of the Bible isn't so much by what you just look at when you see the Bible, but because of the Bible's explanatory value and how it allows you to see so many other things. It explains the order and complexity of the universe. It explains why there even is a universe. It explains why humans have a sense of morality built into them innately. It explains how humans are a mix of good and evil and how you have potential for very good things and potential for very wicked things. It explains why there's even something called a soul that we have that's more than just matter and physicality. It explains even concepts like love and grace and mercy, which if you think about it on an atheistic worldview, is just chemical reactions in your brain. There's no such thing as love. It's just what you're feeling because of the chemical reactions inside of you. The Bible can explain so much in the world, which is why people recognize it has divine origins. Now, before we leave the second point, I know that the skeptical response here is, well, maybe you Christians see that in the Bible. I sure don't. Skeptic might say, the Bible doesn't seem that profound or beautiful or wonderful to me. In fact, it seems kind of weird and silly and ridiculous. You claim to see these divine qualities in the book, but you know, sorry, I don't see them. But you have to remember, these, this is a spiritual claim, and these are spiritual qualities. And you have to have eyes to see spiritual things. What's 1 Corinthians 2 say? The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. The other way to say it is, is that you have to have ears to hear. You have to have eyes to see. Remember, you can hear beautiful music and not recognize it as beautiful music. Even if you don't recognize it as beautiful music, it doesn't make it not beautiful. They actually did an experiment years ago of this. Um, you may not know the name Joshua Bell, but if you are into the world of violinists, you know that Joshua Bell is maybe the world's most famous violinist. Sells out concert halls all over the world. It's like $3 million Stradivarius he plays on. People a few years ago did an experiment with Joshua Bell. They wondered, you know, can people recognize good music when they hear it? Can they, can they recognize a musical genius when it's right in front of them? So they, what they did is they took Joshua Bell and they put him in the Washington, D.C. subway for an afternoon. 
that and put out a little box with a few coins in it. Stand here while people walk by and play on your $3 million Stradivarius. Let's see who can know beautiful music when they see it. So they did this experiment. For about six hours, Bell was out there playing in the subway. Beautiful pieces, complex pieces, Bach, Beethoven, intricacy things. People would, would, would pay $400 a seat to sit in an auditorium and listen to Joshua Bell. And he does it in the subway, and what happens? Exactly what you think would happen. People just simply walked right by. No one really noticed, threw a few coins in the box, thought, well, I'm not really listening to anything special. And they realized that, that most people don't actually know genius music when they hear it. There's a few people that stop, though. They actually have this thing on video. And they realize, whoa, what's going on? There's something different here. This is amazing. What are you doing down here, right? Why are you playing in the subway? And they realize the guy was a musical genius. But at the end of the day, though, most people didn't know it. They added up the money at the end of the day, came to about $32. And you realize, ah, so something can be beautiful music, even if most people can't hear it. If you want to see the Bible for what it is, you have to have ears to hear. That brings us to the third and last of our reasons to believe the Bible is true in the Word of God. First was Jesus' testimony. Second, as we just talked about, is the Bible's own internal testimony. But now we come to the third, which is history's testimony. History's testimony. And this is where we get into this world of historical evidences. This is what I've spent my academic career studying. And as I thought about this, I was like, what, what can you say in such a short message about this? And the answer is hardly anything. We don't have time to unpack all the complexities of all the different aspects of biblical history and show you why you can trust them. Like I said, there's resources you can get, places you can go, come see us at the seminary. We can talk more. But I just want to give you a few tidbits here under those last points, sort of to whet, whet your appetite and also to remind you that we have reasons for why we believe these books. Let's just take the Gospels as a sample test here. Why do I pick the Gospels out of the entire Bible? Because everyone agrees this is the centerpiece of the Bible because Jesus is the center of the Bible, right? And so what we think about these books kind of determines what you think about everything in the Bible. Do we have a reason to think these books give us reliable history? Well, anytime you want to know whether a book gives you reliable history, you want to know whether the, the authors that claim to have written it could have been there. Could they have been eyewitnesses? The authors of our Gospels claim to be first century Palestinian Jews, and in the case of Luke, at least a Gentile who was friends with first century Palestinian Jews, who were there seeing these events firsthand. So we could ask the question, when I read the Gospels, are they written in a way that gives me a reason to think the authors actually were there, that they're from that area, that they know the world, they know the culture, they know the language. So scholars study the Gospels and they ask things like, well, what about geography? What about topography? What about the culture? Does it look like a person who's from there? We can do this in our modern day too. I can remember when um, I did a research sabbatical years ago at Cambridge. My whole family moved to Cambridge, England for six months while we lived over there because I was a visiting scholar at the university. And of course, if you've ever lived in England or even just been over there, you know that there's a lot of cultural differences, right? There's a lot of language differences. Trucks aren't trucks, they're lorries. Elevators on elevators, they're lifts, right? You, you're the trunk of a car, it's not the trunk of a car, it's a boot. You know, the faucet's not a faucet, it's a spigot. It's not a trash can, it's a rubbish bin, and on and on it goes. Felt like I was in Ted Lasso or something over there, right? It's like, how many countries are in this country? But then I realized that if I would say to someone later, hey, I've lived in England, but I didn't have any familiarity with any of that, I probably wouldn't have any good reason to think I'd ever been there. What if someone said, I grew up in England, lived there my whole life, and they don't know any of that? 
They don't know any of the language, any of the words, any of the cultural things. You think, well, I'm not really going to trust your testimony when you say you're from there. When we look at the Gospels, what we realize is it gives tremendous evidence that the authors are exactly who they say they are, first century Palestinian Jews. We could test this in so many ways. We could test it geographically, topographically. We could do all kinds of things like that. One of the most common ways it's tested, though, is the use of names. I don't know if you realize that when you read the Gospels, it mentions names, lots of them. Names of the disciples, names of the followers of Jesus, names of other people around, other Jews. What's the chance of someone writing a Gospel, not from Palestine, and knowing the right names to use? Knowing the names that were common in that day. Remember, in the ancient world, you can't just Google it, right? You can't just say, well, I'm not from Palestine, but let's see. Let me Google and find out what the normal names are there, and then I'll draw a book up that uses those names. There's no way to know that. Here's what scholars have done. They've actually studied from other historical sources what the most common names were in first century Judaism. A scholar by the name of Richard Baucom did this a number of years ago. It's just a sample. He found out the most common male names in Israel during the first century in which Jesus lived, this is what we get from all our other historical sources. These are the most common names. Simon, Joseph, Lazarus, Judah, John, and Joshua. And Joshua is actually the name for Jesus because Jesus is just the Greek name, Joshua. Those are the most common names that were present in first century Israel. Then we look at our gospels, guess what the most common names are there? <laughs> Basically the same ones. And you realize that goes on and on in our gospels. They show that they are written by people who are actually familiar in boots on the ground, potential eyewitnesses. It's particularly keen to note this when you look outside of our canonical gospels to other gospels. There's what are called apocryphal gospels floating around out there that claim to be original, but we know they're late and we know they're not historical. The gospel of Judas is a good example of this. By the way, the gospel of Judas has a bunch of names too. And guess what? It gets almost all of them wrong. Hardly any of them match with what we know from historical sources about the common names of first century Judaism. In fact, the Gospel of Judas has a bunch of bizarre names. In fact, there's so many, I didn't even include them in my notes. I should have wrote them down so I could read them to you. But they're clearly from, from, from Greco-Roman myths and other worlds. They're not linked to the actual history of the first century. What does that tell you? That tells you that our Gospels are in our Bibles for a reason. Our Gospels have historical connectedness to people who are actually there. And this is exactly why Christians have trusted the testimony in them for thousands of years. We could go on and on with other examples if we had time, but let me just mention one more, and that is a scholar by the name of William Ramsey. I don't know who that is. In the early 20th century, Ramsey was an Oxford scholar, or a famous Oxford scholar, um, and his specialty was the Book of Acts. And he was a profound skeptic of the book of Acts. He thought it was pretty much rubbish. In fact, he wanted to prove it was rubbish. So he did something really interesting. He decided to go on a journey in, the, in, the, in the, uh, uh, an Asia Minor where the book of Acts largely takes place and retrace the steps that Luke lays out in the book and, and prove once and for all it's not reliable. Well, as you might guess, it didn't go that way. In fact, the more Ramsey studied it, the more he traveled, he realized, wait a second, Luke actually is remarkably accurate time and time again, vindicated over and over. So much so that Ramsey ended up flipping to the opposite view. He became one of the biggest advocates of the historical reliability of Acts in the second half of his career, all because he looked at the historical data. Here's a quote from Ramsey later in his life. This is what he said. 
I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet. And I found it here in the book of Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. Here's what I want you to see this morning. When people say they believe the Bible is God's word, there's reasons why we do. And I think they're really good reasons. And what I want to leave you with this morning is those three, and there's many more. We have reasons to believe because of Jesus's testimony, the Bible's own internal testimony, and history's testimony. And there's so much more that we can say if we had time. But as we go from here today, I hope that a couple things might happen. One, if you already believe these things, that you might be encouraged, have greater confidence. That's a good takeaway. Those of you who are skeptical, I hope that you will dive deeper. It's amazing how many skeptics I meet, and they're content to have read one article or talk to one uncle at Christmas or something and conclude, well, the Bible can't possibly be true. I can tell you there's much more to study. I hope that when you leave, you'll take the effort to go even deeper into it. Don't take my word for it. If, you're, if, you've, if, you're, if you've heard this today and you don't know what you believe, go deeper. Study the hard data and find out whether the Bible has the credentials that we claim. But for all of us, though, the big takeaway is more than intellectual because the Bible makes claims about eternity, about Jesus, about salvation. So I don't think it's an exaggeration to say maybe one of the greatest decisions of your life will be what you think about this book. Because what you think about this book is really what you think about Jesus, and what you think about Jesus is really what you think about eternity. And my encouragement to you today is that we have great confidence that the message we have here is true, that Jesus is real, and that we can have hope as a result. As Jesus said from the beginning, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for a chance to think of these things, ponder them. Pray for all of us here that you would encourage us if we already trust. For those who aren't sure today, I pray that this would challenge them to go deeper. And Lord, for all of us, though, we look to the example of Jesus, who when he faced trials and tribulations, the first place he went to was always your word, the bread of life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.